What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, golly, I hope I'm the first one to wish you a happy Friday and that you're going to have a great weekend. Welcome again to Catholic Connection. Catholic Connection, good grief. Called to Communion. I'm thinking C, the letter C there. That is the alliteration we're going for. I'm a little uh, unfocused today, but I'm glad to be with you. It is the Friday edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we'd love to hear from you today. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code, which is 1, and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. We'll get to one of those in a flash here. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc. Excuse me, at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson handling social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box, and then uh, Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can get your question answered on uh, today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Tom, Andrews. how are you today? Well, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing decent. Thank you. I think we're both a little un, un, unfocused today. It's, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's Friday. It's the beginning of a long weekend. I found uh, myself nodding off this morning at the did office. Did you really? I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, did, I didn't give in to it, but like, you know, the head kept dipping forward. I, I know the droop. Yep. But but you're with us. Uh, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Definitely. We're going to lead off with this email from Dave. Dave says, do Catholics reconcile the God of Jeremiah, who withholds favor from the people for their rebelliousness, with the grace and love afforded to each human soul by Jesus in the New Testament. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So there's this long-standing myth, I think it's a myth, that there's a contrast between the Testaments in presenting the God of the Old Testament or the prophets as a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament as a God of mercy, um, as if, you know, an absolute antinomy between those two. And one of the reasons that strikes me as uh, really uh, unbelievable is that the God of the New Testament is inescapably a God of wrath. Um, So let me give you a few passages uh, from the teaching of Christ in the New Testament. Uh, In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, because it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for, uh, for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. So Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament are kind of the archetypal example of God pouring out his wrath on disobedient people. And Christ specifically indicates that those that rejected his ministry will be in worse shape than Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, verse 8, um, St. Paul writes, uh, God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with everlasting destruction. They will shut them out from the presence of the Lord on the day that he, Christ, comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So he looks at the coming of Christ as a, as a day of wrath, right? 
And then, you know, to sort of beat all, the book of Revelation, it, it, there's nothing in the Old Testament that can hold a candle <laughs> to the amount of wrath and bloodshed promised in the book of Revelation. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, in Revelation 14, the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Uh, they were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out from the press, rising as high as horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Whoa. So, I mean, that's obviously a figurative description, but yeah, we're yeah. talking about we're talking about rivers of blood pouring out from the wine press of God's wrath, Ooh. you know, uh, to the height of a horse's bridle. I mean, that's what is that about five feet off the ground? Mm, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, there's no image like that in the Old Testament at all. So the idea that you know it's all love and bunnies in the New Testament and all wrath and punishment in the Old just strikes me as patently untrue to the New Testament. Yep. Now, what about the characterization of the Old Testament God is all, all, all wrath and evil and punishment? Well, interestingly, most of the references to God's love mm-hmm. in Scripture are in the Old Testament. Christ actually never, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, never says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, God loves you. He never says it. Hmm. Now, I'm not denying that God loves you, right? but I mean, the characterization of Christ's ministry as if the main point of Jesus' ministry were to proclaim the love of God, to me, just as false to the text. Jesus actually never says God loves you in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he says it only about twice in the Gospel of John. And in the apostles preaching the book of Acts, they never once say God loves you. Mm. We, we do find that message pretty explicitly in Paul's epistles, right? Paul, who's so often pilloried as being a judgmental Puritan, is the guy who talks about God's love. Christ actually basically doesn't talk about it, at least not explicitly. Okay, what was Jesus's central message? Repent, because the kingdom of God is near. Yes. Repent. Why would you need to repent? Because you're going to be cast out of the presence of God if you don't when He comes in glory. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And then the message of love that Jesus preaches is not primarily the message that God loves you. He doesn't actually ever say that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is the message that you should love one another. Now, now he does get into the love of God in a roundabout way by suggesting you should love one another as God loves you, God who causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. You should also be you know, kind and considerate and non-judgmental towards people. Uh, but the message of love that Christ preaches is primarily this exhortation to love one another. So does the Catholic faith believe that you can reconcile the God of the Old and the God of the New Testament? Yeah, that's a dogma of the faith predicated on the doctrine that it is one and the same God. All right. Dave, thanks so much uh, for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here is the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We uh, generally do uh, several emails at the beginning of each of our shows uh, that we do live for you every uh, Monday through Friday. And also, once a month or so, we'll uh, empty out the mailbag and see what all's in there and answer a whole passel of emails on programs like that. And again, the address, ctc at EWTN.com. Right now, the main focus is on you and your phone calls. Here is our number, 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, maybe you'd like to explain what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. You may have a very good reason. You may have 
uh, like I was a little earlier, an unfocused reason. In any event, do give us a call at 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Do stay with us. It's called a communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. My personal recommendation is that you call early because on Fridays, the phones tend to fill up rather quickly. Right now, we do have a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in a moment here. Let me tell you about a wonderful book now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It is called Good Night, Jesus, a children's bedtime story by Kate Snyder, illustrated by Anna Morelli. You may remember the book um, Good Night Moon. That was just a wonderful book that you could read to your kiddos in the evening. Well, this delightful book, Good Night, Jesus, helps children reflect on God's blessings in their lives. The captivating images also convey the importance of faith and family, friends and fun, and a personal relationship with Jesus. This book, is a winner, Good Night Jesus, a children's bedtime story, and it's brand new from EWTN Publishing, available now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Tom in Twinsburg, Ohio, listening on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey there, Tom. Happy Friday. What's on your mind today, sir? Um, I just moved from um, an um, condo to an assisted living and retirement type um, facility in Twinsburg, Um a fellow resident in here is um, trying to convert me away from the church. He, he calls the church blasphemous. He um, he says uh, that we worship Mary, and et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure you could fill in the bunch of the lines he says. Mm, yeah. He invited me to his church, um, and I invited him to mine, thinking, never dreaming he'd accept it. Now he's trying to get a ride my church. I don't know if he's going to cause a scene at, at the Mass. He comes over to the table um, at the dinner. I was moved from his table where I was originally placed to another one. Now he comes over to ours. The other people at the table are getting pissed off. He bangs on the door for me or the other people or the staff to try to bring a Bible to them. Um, I, I don't know if you have any advice on how I can deal with this, because it, it, I've only been here, like, um, since August 15th, and it's driving me crazy already. Yeah, okay. thank you. I'm really sorry for your, uh, your, your I don't know, your... Dilemma. Sort of dilemma, yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with the right word for it. Sorry for your dilemma. So with, with, if, as far as your living situation is concerned, I would really advise that you that you make this uh, a formal complaint to the administrator of the facility and say this this man is is making my life unlivable here and you know I like the facilities but I I can't live like this you've got to put a stop to it. Um, I mean at a certain point, you know this is harassment you know bordering on bordering on assault if he's you know physically intimidating you especially so i mean absolutely you, you need to make a complaint to the authorities at the facility and uh, and so they have to stop this um you know i uh, you know i'd like everybody to 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 go to mass you know if, 
I think if if in your good judgment you think that this guy is is just doing this to, um, you know, to make a scene, I, I don't feel obligated. I wouldn't feel obligated to arrange for his transportation at all. And I really wouldn't personally, I would not go to his church. And if he invited me and I, I mean, reciprocating is not what I, I, I wouldn't engage in dialogue with the guy because no. he doesn't want dialogue. He's not interested in open, honest communication that's motivated by charity. He's motivated by hate. And I, I have no time for that. Tom, thanks so much for your call. Hope that that all works out there with your uh, dilemma. And that opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986, the Friday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Tricia in Martinez, Georgia, listening on the great St. Paul Radio. Hello, Tricia. What's on your mind today? Hi. Well, first of all, I need to give an EWTN plug in your show in particular. I have been a Catholic since July 18, 2020, and I've never been happier in my life. Uh It is amazing. And if you're thinking about being an extraordinary minister, anybody out there, you won't believe the graces God gives you. It's totally amazing. So my question is, You're welcome. I hope that I can word this right. Um, I was looking at Revelation 12.4 the other day, where it talks about the dragon after waiting for Mary to birth the child, and she also says she yells out with pain. And I might be thinking of this wrong, probably am, but I was thinking about, you know, her having a virgin birth, and somehow I just assumed it wouldn't be painful. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So you're correct about the Blessed Virgin Mary, that she did not have a normal childbirth and she didn't experience the labor pains when she gave birth because she was virginal in her conception and virginal in her parturition of the Son of God. And that means not just that she didn't have relations with a man, but that she, her, the physical integrity of her body was maintained during the, this miraculous parturition mm-hmm. and she so wouldn't have suffered any pain. So what then do you do with Revelation chapter 4? Well, Revelation chapter 4 speaks of a woman, doesn't actually specifically name her as Mary, it speaks of a woman clothed with the sun, the moon, under her feet, and a crown of stars over her head, and she is the woman who gives birth to the child who will rule the nation with the, nations with a rod of iron. And, of course, that's a re- reference to Psalm 2. It's a messianic reference, and that's clearly Christ. So uh, it is a very reasonable in- inference to say, well, we know who gives birth to Christ. That would be the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so the Church has has always identified, has often, I should say, identified this woman clothed with the sun with the Blessed Virgin Mary. But, but she also seems to uh, to uh, to correspond to the Church, who is the mother of all those that believe in Christ. And that's another lang- piece of language that's used about this character in the story. Um, and the way we handle that is to say, okay, this, was a, well, this is a biblical typology. What's a typology? A typology is when you have one historical reality that really does have its own sort of integral existence. It's not just a figure, it's a real thing. But it also figures something else in salvation history. Um, and so, for example, the, uh, the Israelites, um, you know, uh, passing through the cloud and drinking from the water from the rock, as St. Paul tells us, is a typology for Christ. And the rock from which we drink is Christ. Um, uh, and these relationships between Old Testament type and New Testament antitype run throughout New Testament theology. Mm-hmm. 
And the way the fathers understand the relationship of the woman clothed with the Son to the Blessed Virgin Mary is, yes, you, at one level you have a reference to the Church who suffers in bringing forth children uh, f uh, for God, namely the martyrs and so forth. Uh, but you also have that standing as a kind of a type to the antitype of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So it's kind of both and thing. You shouldn't look at it as a as a uh, a literal description of Mary that admits of no other depths. Okay. And so that's just the way we read that. And uh, thank you so much for your call there, Tricia. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Busy phones today. However, we do have two lines open at this exact moment, 833-288-EWTN, if you want to snag one, 833-288-3986. Let's go to Tabitha now in Arkansas, listening on YouTube. Hello, Tabitha. What's on your mind today? Hello? Hi. Uh, hello. Anyways, um, a few... Uh, yesterday I was listening to old shows, and I come across the one from a few weeks ago where a caller was complaining about the Salve Regina prayer, where it says, um, our life, our sweetness, and our hope being directed to Mary. And I think, you know, I've reflected on this prayer, and I think that the, our sweetness, our life, our sweetness, and our hope is actually directed to Jesus, because there's so many comments commas, you know, it says, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, which is Jesus, Mother of Mercy, and um, the Mercy part is Jesus, and then, comma, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. So what does he think about that? <laughs> yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question, and and I, I appreciate what motivates the question. Um I, I think you're trying too hard to exegete the Salve Regina in a way that keeps the literal sense of the text and saves the primacy of Christ's mediation. And I think there's another way of doing it that, that gets away from exegeting the exact words, uh, but still saves your priorities. Um, and that is the genre of the prayer, the literary genre. You know, anytime you're trying to interpret a text, and what does this mean for me or for my community— you have to ask yourself about what, what kind of text is this? And is the Salve Regina uh, a passage from a dogmatic theology textbook about the nature of the Blessed Virgin Mary? And the answer is no, it, it, nor is it some kind of papal pronouncement of Marian dogma framed in a way that could be set forth as divine revelation. This is a devotional prayer born from the heart of the people of God um, that is essentially like love poetry, right? And, and a lot of the imagery and language that we use in Marian devotion has its origins in the late Middle Ages from the era of the troubadour. And if you can imagine, you know, um, Robin Hood and Maid Marian, you know, and there she is on the balcony and she's got one of those conical hats that has the, you know, the weird scarf hanging out of the top of it. And she's, you know, blushing and hanging out up there and here comes Robin Hood, or a fox, if you prefer the Disney version, <laughs> um, and he's you know strumming away on his on his lyre or whatever it is. Brave, brave Sir Robin. <laughs> well, that's another one. That's, that's another, another one. one. Yeah. And uh, and and the the troubadour in that context, you know, speaking to his beloved lady, says all kinds of nonsense that no one actually believes, right? And that's and that's 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 always true of love poetry, right? Um, you know, I mean, you were to go back and read my love letters to Jill from 30 years ago or 
Tom's love letters to Adrian mm. 30 years ago, you'd, you'd find all kinds of nonsense, I'm right? Afraid so. All kinds of nonsense. <laughs> and uh, and it's not meant to be taken literally, you know. I mean, mm. I mean this is thinking about uh, Princess Leia. Help me, Obi Wan. You're my only. You're hope. my only hope. <laughs> you know, and uh, and I and that's just how you have to read it, sure. right? So is Mary our only hope? Well, of course not. And no Catholic believes that. No Catholic believes that, right? Um, but this is love poetry. Now, is it true that we have hope in Mary? Well, of course it is. But that's not to denigrate in any way the unique mediation of Christ. I mean, to take a comparison, I have hope in my wife. I don't have as much hope as I do in Mary, but I mean, I have hope in my wife. Hope for her salvation, hope for her goodwill and kindness, hope sure. that she'll mediate for me, that she'll pray to God on my behalf. I mean, I have all kinds of hope in my wife mm. without in any way implying that that she somehow takes Jesus's place in my life. And if you, you know, if you got me in the right kind of mood, uh, you know, over a candlelight dinner, might I say, you know, help me, Jill, you're my only hope. <laughs> you know, you might, you might get that kind of language. You might indeed. Tabitha, thanks so much uh, for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Holly is a first-time caller from San Antonio, listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Holly. Uh, happy Friday. What's on your mind today? Hi, thank you. My question is, when I listen to EWTN radio, I often hear ads, like I did today, about the Catholic perspective. Here's a book on Genesis and a Bible study from the Catholic perspective. Well, what is the Catholic perspective, and how is that different from other Bible teachers? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So there, there are quite a few things that would go into the uh, Catholic perspective on the Bible. First and foremost, Catholics believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that it's the inspired Word of God, but we don't think that God gave us the Bible to be a kind of comprehensive manual, sort of a user's guide, if you will, on the Christian life. There are many Christian denominations, many Christian groups that think that that's what the Bible is. It's kind of like the, you know, the user's manual on my Toyota Camry. Like, this tells you everything you need to know about being a Christian. And if it's not in the Bible, you don't have to do it. If it is in the Bible, you have to do it just as written, right? It's, in other words, it's the rule of faith for the Church. And the, the Catholic Church doesn't think that's what the Bible is. We think it's God's inspired Word, but it has a particular function in the life of the people of God, and it's much more say, the center of the Church's prayer and liturgy. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a source for theological reflection, a moral exhortation. Uh, you know, we can encounter God in its pages. We can be moved to the life of holiness by reading Scripture. But it's not, in any shape, form, or fashion, is it a standalone, utterly sufficient guide for Christian life. And, and it, all you have to do is peruse the individual texts of Scripture and see that none of them presents themselves that way. You know, I mean, like... You're going to pick up the book of Ecclesiastes and think it can answer a question for you about, say, stem cell research. <laughs> it's, it's category mistake right, here, right? right, you, right. you see my point. So I, we don't think the Bible does that. Now, there is a rule of faith for Catholics, and we think that's the teaching church that Christ founded, that the church actually precedes the Bible, comes before the Bible. Jesus mm -hmm. established the church and gave the church the authority to teach and hand on divine revelation and and what it binds on earth, Christ says, will be bound in heaven, and he'll be with the church till the end of the age. So the church is the rule of faith, not the Bible. Uh, which means that as I'm reading the Bible and trying applying it to my life, that I have to be guided by the history of Catholic interpretation down for 2,000 years. And that's what we call sacred tradition. So I don't read the Bible in a vacuum. I read it together with the tradition of the church down through the ages. 
guided by the present teaching authority of the church, right? So that's, that's sort of ground zero for how Catholics relate to the Bible. But there's more to it than that also. I mentioned that some non-Catholics think that the Bible is not only sufficient, but that it's kind of perspicuous, that it's, it's sort of obvious and clear in a common sense kind of way what the Bible means, and that any Tom, Dick, or Harry could pick it up and read it and know what it's about. And that's, from a Catholic point of view, pretty naive and flat out wrong, and I'll tell you why after the break. Sit tight, Holly. We'll continue with your question in just a moment here. And uh, good news, there's a couple lines open for you. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Call now. It's called A Communion with Dr. David Anders on this uh, Friday afternoon. Hope it's uh, a beautiful day where you are. Everything I've heard is just like fantastic weather, pretty much uh, coast to coast. Glad about that. So a great way to kick off this Labor Day weekend. By the way, we do have a special uh, mailbag program for you coming up on Labor Day. So be sure to tune in for that. Our next live broadcast will be on Tuesday. All right, back to the phones right now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Lynn in Lafayette, Louisiana, listening on the great Christ Our King radio. Lynn, what's on your mind today? Well, I just am curious about what does the church represent? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the word church comes from a Greek word that means uh, a gathering, you gather a group of people together. And Jesus speaks about the church, uh, especially in the book of Matthew. He talks about it explicitly. And even when he doesn't mention it explicitly, his behavior throughout the Gospels is evident that he means to gather about him a group of disciples and then send them to do likewise, that they are also to gather a group of people around the message of Christ in his person and, and, and that they form a community and that there is a a, a rite of passage, a visible rite of passage into that community, namely baptism, and that there is uh, there are concrete teachings, like objective teachings uh, and rituals that members of this community practice, namely the teaching of Christ, the reading of Scripture, uh, and then the sacraments. We already mentioned baptism, but the holy sacrifice of the Mass, or the Eucharist, that Christ instituted when he said, do this in memory of me, is really central to um, uh, the Christian life of prayer and community. So, when Jesus talks about the church, he's talking about a visible organization with rites of passage, uh, with cultic worship, and with a sort of concrete, objective, definitive form of teaching. When he sent the apostles out, he said, teach the disciples everything that I have commanded you. So that's what we mean by the church, this concrete, visible organization with rites of passage and concrete, definitive teaching. Um, it is possible to be in the church or out of the church. And, uh, and this is not a matter of subjective opinion. This is an objective fact. I mean, it's like, you know, I am not a member, personally. I am not a member of the University of Alabama undergraduate football team. Okay. I have never been a member of the undergraduate football <laughs> team, right? And, uh, and would have no chance of getting on that team, right? I, and, and, you know, if, I, if, God forbid, I got on the team, all I'd have to do is show up for one practice, and, and uh, Nick Saban would immediately kick me off of the team. He would see that I didn't have what it takes, and I would not be a part of that organization. And Jesus uses that same kind of language about the church. The church is something that a person can visibly be recognized as belonging to mm -hmm. and being kicked out of. So Matthew 18, for example, Christ says, if you find somebody that's in sin and they're unrepentant and they won't listen to that, you or your neighbor 
or the church, then you kick them out and you treat them like a tax collector or an center and so forth. So it's uh, very much a visible society. You can be in it. You can be out of it. Uh, it it's held together by a definitive form of teaching, namely the teaching of Christ, uh, rites, and sacraments. Now, uh, there's more we can say about the church, that Christ didn't just establish an amorphous group of people around these sacraments, but he also established a hierarchical form of government within it. So the apostles uh, go forth as sent by Christ, and they in turn ordain other men to that sacred office after them, who then teach the adherents, teach the people, teach the believers. And so we have a distinction between clergy and laity in the church. Um, uh, there, are, there are people in the church who take up a particular form of life. So Christ told the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 12, for example, that if you want to be perfect, you should sell all that you have and give to the poor, come and follow me. But he doesn't give that advice to everyone. There are some people, like the Gerasene demoniac, he says, no, don't, don't do that. Go back to your family and tell them what God's done for you. We see different states of life in the church. So some people follow that counsel of perfection. They sell everything, give to the poor, take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and they live as religious or monks, nuns, this kind of thing, in a gathered form of celibate life to really exemplify Christian virtues more perfectly. Uh, there are others who, say, take up the estate of marriage, uh, which is also perfectly legitimate. Paul mm -hmm. says, hey, there are these two ways of living the Christian life. One is better. Uh, that's my celibate way of life. But uh, for some of you, marriage is better. Um, and I could go on and on, but, I mean, that's kind of the basic shape of it. Now, one, one really important hierarchic function in the church that I didn't mention, I should mention, Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 16, that is one person to whom Christ gives the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the power of binding and loosing, uh, who is named as the rock foundation of the church's unity, and that would be St. Peter, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And for 2,000 years, Catholics have understood that that Petrine office, that office of St. Peter, is being the rock foundation of the church who has the keys, it passes to his successors, the bishops of Rome, what we call the Pope. There you go. Th uh, Lynn, thanks so much for your call from uh, Lafayette. Appreciate hearing from you. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Greg now. Greg is in Indianapolis listening on the great Catholic Radio Indy. Hello, Greg. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, I was trying to uh, get the gentleman to uh, reiterate what he stated about how he was trying to raise his son. It was three things, and one I caught was uh, virtuous. The other one, I think, was self-reliant, and there was one other one, and I was hoping he could tell me what that one was. Well, it. sure. So I, I, I remember this call. I think this was in a previous day. We were yeah. talking about raising children and what we aspire for them, and, and so you know, my thoughts were rather spontaneous. I don't know that I can recapture them exactly, but some of the things that I desire for my children are that they be charitable, that uh -huh. they love others, uh, that they be virtuous, that they, you know, have those kind of human perfections that enable them to live a good, noble, and admirable life. Uh, I do want them to be self-reliant. Um, I want them to be, oh, this was the word, I want them to be resilient. Oh, yeah. Right? So resilience means that, uh, you know, you get knocked down, you get back up again. Life knocks you down, you get back up again. Mm -hmm. You're not taken out of the game. You know, you don't tap. Uh, that's resilience. And I want my children to be resilient. Now, I'm a father. I've got, uh, I've got five children and some grandchildren. Have I perfectly succeeded in producing exactly, you know, the, the, the perfect, utterly virtuous, self-reliant, resilient kids, right? Well, you know, to do that, I myself would have to be the perfectly virtuous, self-reliant, resilient uh, grown-up. And I'm not that guy, 
right? I'm a wounded human being with all my with all my faults and difficulties and flaws, and so I'm a work in progress, like we all are. Yeah, and, sure. You know, but in spite of that, I love my kids. They love me, mm-hmm. uh, and we all get along the best we can, and we try to mm-hmm. do better every day. Mm-hmm. That's where we, where we need to be. Appreciate that, Greg. Thanks so much uh, for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Lori is a first time caller in Minneapolis. Let's see here. Uh, Lori is listening on the EWTN app as well. Hello, Lori. What's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you. Dr. Anders, I know you're not a confessor, but my question is, um, how do I make restitution to somebody for a grave sin that I've committed against them when going to that person and being honest with them about what I've done would hurt them deeply? Um. Thank you. I appreciate the question. Without knowing the details, of course, um, generally, I would say the solution to that problem is don't go to them and tell them what you've done. Mm. Right? You you should go to confession. Yes. Oh, yes. Make a confession to the priest, receive absolution, and do your penance. Um, but there's a reason why the confessional is private, and there's a reason why priests are bound by the seal. Right? It's so that you can have reconciliation— and move on with your life, uh, and you you don't have to have that exposed to the entire world, right? Yeah. yeah. And there are, you know, there are, um, yeah. So uh, I think there are occasions when you have to be straight with the person that you've sinned against. Um, but uh, but I think there are other occasions when you know it's it's best to just move on, and and the way you reconcile, the way you make restitution is, you really you're not that person again. Right. Yeah. Whatever, whatever kind of infidelity or offense that you would have caught, you just really, you just don't do that again. Mm-hmm. There it is. Lori, thanks so much uh, for your call. Uh, Allie is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Allie says, I have wanted to attend RCIA and learn how to join the Catholic Church. My husband passed away a few years ago. His ashes are in my home. Other family members will not want his ashes buried at any church or veterans' burial place. Any advice or thoughts? Thank you, Allie. Yeah, thanks, Allie. I really appreciate the question. I appreciate your interest in RCA, and I'm very sorry for the loss of your husband. At the end of the day, he's your husband. You know, and so you, you're, unless, you know, he names somebody else the executor of his ashes or in some way that you have no legal authority, I'd say you you're you're the boss of this yes right and what you decide you decide and uh and you and you follow your conscience that's what you do yeah absolutely appreciate that Allie. thank you so much uh, for your call call to communion here on ewtn um here's here's what i've got i wanted to let you know about uh blessed to play coming up Sunday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, one of our great weekend programs. This weekend, Ron Meyer interviews Mike Sutter about his time playing football as a safety for Penn State's football team and, of course, his Catholic faith. Again, that's coming up Sunday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, a great program, Blessed to Play with Ron Meyer, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to uh, Matt, a first-time caller from St. Louis, listening on the Great Covenant Network. I was blessed uh, a week ago today, David. I don't think I told you about this. Blessed to visit Covenant Network there in St. Louis. And uh, what a wonderful 
uh, apostolate that is. They've been with us, EWTN, since just about the very beginning. That's, fast. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, always great to uh, be there with them. Let's go now to Matt in St. Louis. Uh, Matt, what's on your mind today? Thank you. Um, so I was a, a missionary for about five years. I worked with college students and um, very blessed with the formation I received in that time. It's been a couple of years since I've been with that apostolate, but now that I'm in a parish, I have a family um, growing and making disciples. Um, I, my wife and I are noticing that a lot of uh, the people we work with don't even realize like what mortal sin is. They don't even know that getting drunk is a mortal sin and and a lot of the areas that we're trying to help form them in. So I was just curious, like, what you all are seeing in the church with formation, um, allowing people to truly, like, grow deeper in interior life and understand, like, what it means to be a disciple of the Lord and, and actually have a heroic life of virtue. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, um, obviously, the, uh, the, the problems that you identify— and the need for some kind of reform of practical parish life is at the heart of Pope Francis's vision of the Church. And if you've ever read his, his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, it's all about this question, how to make the kerygma, the message of Christ's death and resurrection, central to Christian living, how to make the missionary imperative central to Christian living, how to cut through uh, centuries of bureaucratic red tape, that sometimes act as a barrier to authentic apostolate um, when we put, say, maintenance of structures and institutions over the, over the goals of mission. Um, I really think that's the heart of Francis's vision. And for that matter, it was the heart of Benedict and the heart of John Paul II as well. Uh, so, and I think it was the heart of Paul VI and John XXIII. I mean, the Second Vatican Council was intended to be a catechetical council um, that would uh, facilitate making the Word of God accessible to people of the modern world. Uh, John Paul II promulgated the Catechism of the Catholic Church of the Second Vatican Council uh, to be a guide for exactly the kind of things that you're talking about. Now, here's the challenge. So we got the Catechism. Magnificent book. Everybody should own one. What if nobody reads it? Mm. Which they don't, by the way. Like, People like us read the Catechism, but your average Catholic on the street does not read the Catechism. So all this magnificent formation and wonderful papal encyclicals and apostolic exhortations and all the rest of it falls on deaf ears if nobody reads the documents and does what they say. And so uh, um, uh, at one level, of course, it's up to the bishops to, to rule and guide their own diocese and to pl- place the teaching of the council in their own context and, and, uh, and do that. Um, uh, some do a better job than others, obviously. Uh, but it's quite difficult because you're you're working. Uh, even the most well-intentioned Catholic bishop and priest is working against, um, you know, decades or centuries of ingrained cultural habit about the nature of faith formation, what Catholic identity means, and how do you, you know how do you turn a, a giant ship with a tiny rudder? I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of the issue. Now, um, I see. Um, you mentioned working f- as a missionary with a Catholic apostolate to university students. I would. I would bet a catechism of the Catholic Church, I know what that agency is, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. I bet I know what that agency was. And uh, whether it was the Fellowship of Catholic University Students or not, uh, agencies like that are wholly committed to the project that you're talking about. And there are many of them in the Church. So, you know, some that come to mind, obviously the Augustine Institute uh, uh, focus, and those are mm-hmm. sort of allied institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Ministry of... Uh, 
Franciscan um, University of Steubenville like their program Franciscan at Home yes. that we use in our own diocese to do catechetical training for mm-hmm. catechetical leaders. Um, uh, you know, ministries like Amazing Parish or Dynamic Catholic or or um, uh, M3 Ministries with Deacon Keith Strom. Um, There's uh, some good ones. Re- re- rebuilt. Uh, you know, the Diocese of Baltimore, Archbishop uh, William Laurie has a whole department in his diocese for renewal of the parish uh, and how to implement this catechetical vision and has sort of like parish renewal experts that go out to individual um, uh, parishes and like teach people how to how to renew their pastoral structures. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of years ago, the um, art, the, uh, the Archdiocese of Detroit uh, underwent sort of a sort of radical revisioning of their whole catechetical evangelistic procedures and put the entire diocese through this kind of a uh, sort of radical renovation of their modus operandi. So there, there's a lot that's going on in the church to do what you're talking about. Um, and, but of course, the obstacles are 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 quite serious. Uh, uh, we have external obstacles in the form of a culture that's, um, you know, uh, digitized and multimedia and and distracting and attractive and compelling, you know, over against you know, sometimes sleepy old Father Joe, who, who you know, <laughs> has preached the same homily for the last 45 years, mm. and he may be a wonderful man, but, like, it's hard to get the attention of people who are, who are you know, jazzed up with the adrenaline of the digitized universe. Uh, but then we have internal problems as well, and some of them we've already alluded to, those problems of cultural habit yeah. and, uh, and, um, and ignorance about Catholic identity, and, and, and pushing through those is... Uh, is hard without really doing a big shakeup of structures, and um, you know, and no one likes to come in and do a big shakeup of structures. Yeah. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for your call. Glad that you uh, checked in from St. Louis. Here is Mark in Houston, listening on the Great Guadalupe Radio, AM fourteen thirty. Mark, what's on your mind today, sir? You had a question uh, as a follow-up on the earlier call that was talking about the Catholic perspective on the Bible. Okay. And you said, and you said that. Um, the Bible really isn't the final rule of faith that you go by church tradition. And so my question is, if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then why would you have the church having more authority over what God says? Yeah, thanks. So first of all, it's a false dichotomy, because Catholics believe that sacred tradition is divine revelation. So God speaks to us through divine revelation, right? You know, he speaks to us through Scripture, but he also speaks to us through divine revelation in sacred tradition. So it's not men versus God. It's the different modalities of God's self-revealing, right? Tr- tradition being one and Scripture being another. Reason for that matter, and nature also play into that as well. Uh, but as to the why, so let me, let me deal with this for a while, because this is a complex question, and it's a really important question. Um in my, I have a Toyota Camry. It's about 10 years old, has 150,000 miles on it or so. I'm just getting it out of the shop today, actually, so it's on my mind. And in the, in the glove compartment, there is a user's manual. And it tells me what I need to know to run that Toyota Camry. But if I want to go home tonight and make a lemon meringue pie, that Toyota Camry user's manual is the wrong place to look. <laughs> it will not tell me how to make a lemon meringue pie. And that is what I think is going on when Protestants try to make the Bible the absolutely sufficient rule of faith for the Church. It is a category mistake. They're trying to force the Bible into a role for which God does not intend it. So, you know, those passages of Scripture that talk about what Scripture is, inspired and useful for teaching and correction 
and training in righteousness. Those are really good things. Yes. And the Bible will do that. It will serve that function in your life. It will point to Christ. It will point to the church. It will point to the transformation of life. But it doesn't serve the function of being the rule of faith. That is to say, governing every aspect of Christian life and having a definitive answer for every moral or theological question. Uh, you know, there are so many things about that are essential to Christian life that the Bible just doesn't talk about. Let's take a few fundamental ones. I'll just give you some examples. Um, what's the proper mode of baptism? The Bible never says. We don't, we don't actually have any physical description of the rite of baptism anywhere in the Bible or with any of the sacraments. There's nowhere in there. Right? It's not there. Um, should we give Holy Communion to women? Yes. But does the Bible say so? No. There's no physical description of the rite of communion where we see women receiving communion in sacred scripture. Mm -hmm. That's pretty essential to Christian life, but the Bible doesn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. To say nothing of things like, well, you know, um, what should we do about stem cell research, right? Or global warming, or yeah. you name it. I mean, there's just a host of issues that the Bible just doesn't explicitly address and where you cannot reasonably infer. But the problem is deeper than that as well. Because if you think the Bible is a kind of perspicuous, limpid, clear presentation of the mind of God without nuance or difficulty, and that you can just pick it up and just know what it says and how to apply that, uh, you really haven't wrestled with the problems of the text. I'll give you a few. I mean, there are people who do think this way, but if you just start at Genesis to start reading through, you're not going to make it through the book of Deuteronomy before you're ready to kill your children for disobedience, <laughs> because it says to, right? Mm -hmm. Or to stone a young girl to death uh, because she's found to have lost her virginity before marriage. That's what the text says, Deuteronomy 22. If a virgin of Israel marries a man and is found to not be a virgin, take her outside the city and stone her to death. Well, am I supposed to take that at face value? Am I supposed to be running around stoning virgins? Well, uh, well would-be virgins? Not, not virgins, I should say. Yeah. All right. And, and the, the problems like that multiply ad infinitum. Now, the New Testament actually addresses that problematic aspect of the Old Testament in multiple places. So, for example, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Deuteronomy says yes. Jesus says no. Huh? It's both the Word of God. The Gospels say no, and the book of Deuteronomy says yes. Does the Bible contradict itself? Well, at one level, yes. Right? The Bible says that you should stone adulterers. But in John chapter 8, Jesus says, no, you don't. Don't stone adulterers. The Bible says you should, you should execute Sabbath breakers, which is why St. Paul, following the literal text of the Old Testament, went out and started stoning Christians. Because wow. he thought they were Sabbath breakers. Mm -hmm. And then guess what happens? He meets Jesus and his whole world is turned upside down. Yeah. So what does he do with the Old Testament, St. Paul, when he, when he realizes that his literal reading of the text is problematic. He evolves an entirely different theory of the Bible in which the Old Testament becomes an allegory that points to realities that can only be revealed in Christ. And he says that explicitly in a number of places. In the book of Galatians, he talks about the allegories of the Abraham narrative. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says explicitly that the literal reading of the text, and also in 2 Corinthians, what is it, chapter 2, the literal reading, reading of the text is, he calls it, a letter that leads to death. Quite literally, right? Because it would you'd follow it literally, you'd go out and kill people. 
But the spiritual meaning of the Bible, according to St. Paul, mm -hmm. is only available to people who have the Spirit of God. That's what he says explicitly. You have the mind of Christ, but without the mind of Christ, the things of Christ, the gospel message is foolishness. Foolishness. Because it doesn't correspond to the literal meaning of the text. So within the doctrine of the Bible itself is at least a two-layered understanding of the Bible, that there is a literal sense of Scripture that cannot be taken at face value. And then there is a spiritual reading of the Bible that can only be seen from the perspective of Christian faith when one has the Spirit of God, right? And, and the way the Catholic Church has always understood that is that there are actually at least four senses of the Bible, um, it, packed into, well, three packed into that spiritual sense. And to, to properly understand them, like one actually has to live with the Spirit within the community of the people of God, which is to say one has to read the Bible from within the mind of the Holy Spirit, the mind of the Church, and the mind of sacred tradition. And the Bible gives this as explicit criteria. Paul says in the pastorals that the Church is the pillar and ground of the truth, right? And that sacred tradition, he, saw, he says, guides our interpretation of the text and the consensus of the Catholic faithful. So he says in 1 Corinthians 11, for example, if you have a different interpretation, know that we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God, right? The, the consensus, the Catholic consensus of the people of God becomes a binding interpretive norm for the Bible. And the public teaching of the church itself, Acts chapter 15, we see in council, the apostles and church fathers meeting together to determine matters of legislative significance for the entire Catholic faithful. So the Catholic doctrine of the Bible does emerge out of the Bible, but it transcends the Bible as the Bible points beyond itself. Mark, thank you so much for your call from Houston. Good to hear from you, him today. You today, that is. Uh, what I really wanted to get to, uh, Molly in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on her Alexa device. Molly, we just flat ran out of time. You're about to hear the music uh, start fading up here. Any sec oh, See, there it is right there. So, Molly, please call us back on Tuesday or the day of your choice, and we will put you at the head of the line, I promise. Hey, Dr. David Anders, have a great long weekend. Thank you, Tom. See you Tuesday. Thank you. We hope everybody has a great long weekend. We'll do do this program Monday through Friday, normally 2 p.m. Eastern at uh, that time. And then, uh, of course, we encore that program at, the, at, at uh, 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Looking forward to that long weekend myself. Don't forget, you can check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com slash radio, EWTN.com slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us today. Looking forward to our next visit. Hopefully that'll be on Tuesday right here on Call to Communion. Have a great weekend and God bless. <laughs>